Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is a return guest, an old friend of mine, Matthew Dasper Hughes. He is the international director for an, a challenger law firm called Gunner Cook. I'm going to have a quick overview of what we're going to talk about because it's going to be a, a tough listen. Today, you're going to listen to two very happy geeks who've worked out that if you do things the right way, there's a lot less friction. But our job today is to hold up the ugly mirror. So buckle up. It's not going to be that much fun. So we're going to look at what are the kind of narratives that you might be creating to cover up maybe the odd inadequacy of your own? Why are you not hiring the right people? Where do values fit into all of this? You know, how do you create a, a cultural fast track to you know, or a fast track to cultural cancer by uh, hiring the wrong people and then communicating without clarity um, and creating confusion and then blaming and punishing your people for it? Well, what's the misalignment between what leadership says and what they do and how they live in terms of their values and their culture? What is diversity, equity, and inclusion really? Why do we? Why, why is it a good thing? What isn't good about the diversity uh, movement? And what do you need to ignore? And what's actually amazing about it? And why does it bring real commercial value uh, to a business and to an operation and to your customers and make things better for everyone, apart from the Luddites, of course? And why do people think that they know what values are Yet they miscategorize them all the time. Do you understand the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic and liminal values? What the hell is liminal? Well, we'll find that out as well. How do you tease out the difference and how do you apply it to compensation and measurement? So we're in for a bit of a rough ride because we're going to be looking at blind spots, frequently unasked questions. And this is the ugly mirror. So if you have comments, please get in touch with either me or Matthew. We want to engage in a discussion. This is for all of us to learn. We're trying to build on each other's understanding and experience of the real world and the context in which we operate. So that's what this session is all about. So Matthew, welcome. Well, well really nice to be here. Thank you, Marcus. Not much of a build-up or any yeah, expectation to live up to. So let's start with <laughs> two minutes on your history. Um, how did you get to this point? Oh wow! So it's been it's been a long career. So I'll try and keep it as positive as possible and as relevant as possible. So um, having started out um, in my um, corporate career um, by falling into selling advertising uh, many 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 years ago, um, back when the world was still in black and white and newspapers were still a thing. Because yes, I was selling advertising for for local newspapers. I, I rapidly discovered that actually there were some really important things about selling stuff, which means you actually have to listen to the other person. You have to kind of find out what matters to them and you have to talk to them and understand what they care about. So that was the start of an interesting journey. I then bounced into marketing roles, which then meant that I lurched through a series of um, thankfully non-terminal screw-ups, which I was able to learn from rather than being career limiting. I lurched into a, uh, into a senior marketing role. I, I found myself stumbling into the boardroom and again, screwing up several times, but never quite so badly that it didn't actually kill my career, which is marvellous. 
then found myself by some accident of, of whatever uh, running companies and uh, and again being remarkably successful at it considering the number of mistakes I kept making and the biggest mistakes the ones that sort of kept um, coming up time and time and time again all seem to be based around this thing called people you know you've got hardware which is to somewhat be predictable you've got software which is predictable and predictably annoying and then you've got this other stuff uh, what my one of my hr directors uh, once called meatware which is a very unpleasant way of putting it but people you know the messy bit in the middle that the people actually get stuff done or don't and i realized um after far too long uh, embarrassingly long time that the biggest differentiating factor in whether or not things were working or not working was actually the one person that I nominally had control over, which was me. So as a leader, as a manager, that most of the mistakes that were happening in the organization and any kind of problems that were happening in the organization to some degree, probably, you know, ended up with the chap that I saw every morning when I was shaving. That in a, in a nutshell is how I ended up where I am today. Uh, Antonio Garrido has got a beautiful exercise, which I urge everyone to do. And it's to take a blank sheet of paper and on one side of a blank sheet of paper, write down all the qualities that will make someone in the role that you are in highly successful. Okay. And you need about three or four attempts at this. So you've got to give it a few iterations and then give it to someone to look over and question and then come back to you. And then on the flip side of that, have them write down all the qualities of someone who would be shit in the role. And the red flags, the uh, instant do not hires, okay, and two or three iterations of that as well. And that now becomes their job description. And they have to carry that piece of paper with them whenever they're at work. Because at some stage, you as the hiring or responsible manager will ask them to take that page out and ask them what progress they have made in order to reduce, stop, or eliminate one of the red flags or no-goes, or to uh, build or enhance one of the uh, the in, uh, positive qualities. Now, when that responsibility then is owned by the individual, it's really interesting what happens when you bring when there's a problem with the team and you bring everyone together and you have everyone bring out their piece of paper. I love that. I absolutely love that. Isn't that is beautiful? that beautiful? Just a gem, Antonio. You're a genius. Well, you're very, very genius. <laughs> Fair play. I mean, it's, uh, well, I mean, we both know Antonio, and 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 unfortunately, he is a genius. Uh, I say unfortunately because it's always embarrassing when uh, when, when you're with somebody who's just that smart. So <laughs> I just love it. You can always learn something. <laughs> well, fair enough. Okay, well, the smartest people are the ones who steal beautifully, right? And, well, and that's, exactly, uh, that's, exactly. that's a big talent uh, creates and genius steals. So he did the uh, genius thing. There you go. Was that Pablo Picasso? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that, isn't it? Yeah, no, I love that. That's really good. Um, in some ways, that's like the uh, the old Peter F. Drucker thing, you know, the Drucker letter, but but on steroids, isn't it? You know, if you so Oh, it, it's it actually the, the organization I now work for is actually the first organization I've ever come across who actually does it. And, uh, uh, you know, we've, I've seen it academically, but I've never actually seen it done in practice before. And it's a brilliant idea. So the, the notion is that you get your team, your senior team members to write a letter to the business owner or the, or, or the, or the print business principal saying, here's what I'm going to do this year. Here, here are my my goals. Here's my vision for for my department and the things that I'm going to be doing. Here's the help that I need from everybody else, and here's the help that I'm going to give to everybody else. 
And it means that they take total ownership of what they do. And I love that. And, and actually, in some ways, Antonio's is, is almost like a, 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 a baseline version of that. It's like taking your core values, your core principles. Isn't that good? Oh, well, that actually resolves an issue I'm dealing with with a client very, very neatly. Oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Um, thank you for that. Um, yeah, you're welcome. It, it, it works so well. The first board meeting I sat in in this new um, organisation, I say new because I've only been working for the organisation for just over three months, although I was working with them externally as a business coach for, for the last couple of years. And actually, I've known um, Daryl, who started the business for nearly 20 years. He, he was my lawyer originally when I did a management buyout nearly 20 years ago. So good core uh, values and good uh, good core sort of understanding. I mean, of each how other. relationship works in that as well, yeah. doesn't it? Exactly. Yes, exactly. It's, it's long-term relationships with people who actually get it and who, who care and actually live their values and do the things. Do you notice I'm mentioning values an awful lot here? Almost like that's what we should be talking about to some degree. First of all, let's define what values are and what values yeah. aren't, first of all. Good idea. Because actually, uh, you know, we, we mentioned in the, or you mentioned in your uh, in your eloquent preamble, the fact there are some blind spots around values. And one of them is that values is a very common word that is very commonly used and even more commonly misused. It's um, one of those things that unfortunately is a lot of assumption that we all are talking about the same thing when we're not necessarily. You sort of see things like there's some lovely work. And I know you, you had the guy on your podcast, gosh, it must be a couple of years ago, who did value graphics. And um, some really interesting work there. Not all of the values that are that are listed in value graphics. I think there's like 57 or 60 of them or something from memory. Not all of them are, are necessarily the same types of values. You know, you, you actually can subdivide them and quite usefully subdivide them into things that are intrinsic values, as in things that are internal to me, which are the baseline for my character and my morals, uh, if you like, to some degree, the moral compass that I might have. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily always mean good values. I mean, there can be what we might call a negative values if you wanted to put a subjective judgment on them. But th those intrinsic values define the person I am today. And that doesn't mean that that's a static thing. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to hold those same values forever because there are, of course, aspirational values. There are things that you aspire to. You might recognize that you have certain vices and things that are not necessarily all that good about your character that you might want to intentionally change. Well, that speaks to maybe some aspirational values or uh, I mean, you come across Ben Franklin's 13 virtues. You know, the, 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 well, in his journal, he wrote he had 13. There were 13 virtues, which were the antithesis of his vices. So these are things that he aspired to. And this is what he what it was to, to live a good and meaningful life. So it's things like being industrious, you know, having a work ethic, as we would call it today. It's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's temperance because he was not known for his temperance. Uh, humility, because he wasn't exactly known for his humility either. But he came up with 13 of these things, which uh, which were his aspirational values, as we would call them, but they're virtues in his terminology. And it's almost like his journal is the first ever self-help book. You know, it's, it's really good. But again, it's values based. And it's about internalizing in, uh, the, these things and translating them into behavior. And that's a critical thing that we will no doubt talk about in more detail, because values that simply are nice words are, well, nice words. If you don't translate them into behaviors, if you don't understand what it is, let's say your value is kindness or one of your values is kindness. What behaviors would a kind person do? That's pretty, pretty, pretty integral and, to success. And we then need to think of the ripple effect because every business is a system 
the last couple of years have been really instructive because I've been forced into thinking about things like theory of constraint, the job to be done. When you start combining these concepts, you start to recognize that businesses are very complex systems. They're like organic uh, organisms. And all the different moving parts work brilliantly together if they work in harmony uh, towards the common purpose. Where they are working at odds with one another, then we create silos, we create politics, we create needless friction, which then is translated uh, the behavior that we don't want. So we've got to look at the negative unintended consequences of the decisions that we make based on our values and how we live them. Because if we say one thing and we do another, then we send a very different message. And people pick up on the message of what we do and how they get recognized, rewarded and punished, fired and hired. They don't pay much attention to the words because your words are wind in many cases. So that speaks to trust. So you now have to think think bigger. You've got to think about this bigger picture, which is what's the job to be done? How does the money behind the business permeate the culture through their values and what their priorities are? And are the priorities still the same as when we set the business up? In other words, are we still in business to serve a group of people solving a specific set of problems that we are exceptionally good at solving? Or are we now serving a different need, which is to make a valuation target or something else? If it's the latter, how do we make sure that we lose no quality of service and the customers want to stay with us because we still have to make a profit? We still have to retain our people. We still have to expand our accounts. But most of these things, we create the conditions for those things not to be possible because of short-term thinking. So one of the things I would really love to establish here is some clarity around clarity to begin with in terms of clarity of vision, clarity of purpose. So let's spend a bit of time on that. That's really, really important. And, and if you're sort of looking at clarity of vision, I mean, I, I, I'd build on that to some degree and, and sort of add a few more C's, if I may, um, oh. because ultimately, if you're building a high-functioning team of any kind, really what you're building is community, um, because a community um, is, is a self-sustaining, self-policing culture with clear values, clear behaviours that are congruent with those values. And the whole is routinely greater than the sum of its parts. And, and discretionary effort is the norm. That's that's what a great community looks like. You know, everybody's helping everybody else because that's what we do. That's the way we behave around here. But that's, you know, that comes from that clarity of purpose, that clarity of vision. But that's the pinnacle. You know, what, what are the base levels? You know, what, what are the foundation stones of this? So the, the baseline foundation stone is communication. And you, you're going to like this because it's all C's, which, which fits with your clarity of purpose beautifully. So communication, your minimum level, entry level, ticket to the game, table stakes for basic communication is we're telling each other what's happening. The world-class communication is we're consistently asking and listening and understanding one another because, you know, telling each other is not the same as real communication. Understanding each other is actually world-class communication. Well, once you've got world-class communication, that gives you the, the correct conditions for at least coordinating with each other. So coordination is the next level. Up, and that's your know, minimum level for coordination is we know what's going on. We don't get in each other's way. 
And the world class would be we're actually working efficiently and effectively through joined up systems and processes, which if you're working efficiently and effectively through joined up systems and processes, well, that can lead to cooperation. And cooperation is where we're helping other people when we're asked to and we're getting help when we ask for it. And if it's really good, well, we're actually offering help when we see it's needed and we actually anticipate what help might be needed and others might be doing the same for us as well. That's really great. And that's a great condition for collaboration, which is the set, which is the stage before we reach community. Collaboration is where we're listening to the ideas of other people in the team. Other people are listening to us. Decision-making and solving problems and innovating and creative thinking, whether it's um, you know, true innovation or it's, or it's more adaptation, all of that is routinely achieved through the wisdom of a team rather than the wisdom of any one individual because the collective intelligence is always greater than a single intelligence. When you've got that, then you've got the basic prerequisites for a community to actually occur. And community is where you've got those shared values, that shared behaviours that's with, congruent with those values. I don't know if that makes sense or if I just ran to that. It, it, no, it does. It's fantastic. But I want to work it backwards to begin with the end in mind. Okay. So for us to establish a community that is fully functioning, what are the conditions that need to exist for us to say that we have succeeded? Absolutely. So, so the, the kind of conditions we're talking about, I think, you know, let's take it right back. The conditions are that we need to have a level of understanding of what our own core values are. And, I, and when I say a level of understanding, I am not talking about the most common blind spot of them all that I see in big organisations. And you must have seen it a million times, which is where you've got... Oh, we we better get McKinsey in or KPMG in or or I don't know we, insert name of big four firm here. We'd better get them in to help us because we need to do a values exercise. We need to kind of rebrand. We need to do a bit of a corporate cultural exercise. Let's 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 look at our culture. And this thing is talked about around the boardroom table. Lots of people get paid a lot of money for coming up with stuff that sounds really good and producing reports with the thud factor you know the report that lands on a the desk thousand and, page report uh, thousand pounds a page yeah, yeah you got it <laughs> that's the one yeah. so those kinds of sold on their weight yes absolutely certainly not reported uh, not not sold on their value as uh, opposed to values that's a different thing because if they were then they wouldn't be charging very much money at all because of course the damn thing never leaves the boardroom conceptually Basically, you do this great big un corporate unveiling. You know, you pull back the, uh, the the metaphorical velvet curtain and say, "Look at our marvelous value statement that we're now going to put in framed pictures on every wall, in every corridor, in every boardroom, in every meeting room." And the only time people ever even read them is just to laugh and point and say, "That's completely different to what we actually do," because you know that that's not who they are. So, so, so the the. Taking it back to your point, where, where does this start? It starts with hiring and it starts with understanding what you're even hiring for. I've got one very, very simple rule that I've evolved over the years for not screwing up in hiring. And that is you can have diversity in everything except values. And if you if your hiring process doesn't capture what the, uh, the potential candidates' values really are, then your hiring process is in some measure flawed. You need to be able to work out what they actually care about, what drives them, what their character is, what their morals are. Otherwise, you are going to be causing yourself untold damage. Uh, this is this is the fast track to cultural cancer that we talked about in the green room beforehand. This is where you're recruiting for the wrong reasons. 
And I'm, I, I said, you know, it's about working out the different sorts of values. And I talked about intrinsic values. Extrinsic values are the values that are external to the individual. Well, you want to have an alignment between the company's values, which are to some extent extrinsic and top down, and the individual's uh, uh, values, because otherwise, if you're without that alignment, then the top down values become, uh, become weakened. You end up with people who are um, basically maybe paying lip service for so long as people are actually watching them. But the minute that they get the opportunity to go off and do things their own way, they will do. And their own way is likely to be something that causes some level of cultural cultural dissonance. It basically causes a bit of a disconnect between what you would like them to be doing that's in line with the the company's values and what they actually do, which is in line with their own paycheck. Right. What would be good indicators that maybe you as a leadership team are creating the conditions for dysfunction within your own organization inadvertently without any malice because of the way you are going about recruiting, hiring, onboarding, developing, measuring, compensating, progressing people and recognizing them? Because I I think we need to hold up the mirror here. Absolutely. Uh, and this, what and this are the is symptoms that people will see in their own businesses that they'll think, oh shit, that's me. Sadly, this is one of those things where I have an oh shit, that was me moment. And 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 you know, we talked talked in my preamble about screw-ups that were educational, but thankfully not career limiting. Uh, I mean, they were obviously temporarily career limiting. <laughs> Incentivizing the wrong behaviors through compensation is an obvious one. Um, recruiting based on lagging factors such as um, past experience, past results, which of course are no predictor of future results, basic skill set, you know, all of those things which are they're important, but they're not as important as what people actually do, their behaviours, and who they actually are, their character. And who they actually are is the chisel that carves the, 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 their behaviors out. You know, that that's the it, 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 the values are, are the things that actually define who they really are. And that's that's what's going to keep them showing up and keep them showing up in the way that you want them to. So from a, to answer your question around leadership behaviors, you know, if if the leadership team isn't empowered to actually think in this way and to actually be true to their own values. If basically you don't walk the talk from a leader's point of view, then your leadership team is unlikely to walk their talk, which is obviously going to cascade into any kind of recruitment that they do, and indeed the way that they lead people and the way that they drive people. I'm going to hesitate to use the phrase motivate people because you can't motivate people. It's a point you've made many, many times. Um, That motivation is intrinsic. All you can do is align your incentives in a way uh, that, that actually speaks to their internal motivations. And if you understand those motivations from the point of view of, dare I say, values, then you're onto, the, you're onto a winner. But if you don't, you're not. Again, I think part of the challenge here, and I've sparked this debate on LinkedIn, curious where it goes, which is the question of whether or not we should have commission-based sales. I'm not absolutely in favor of not having commission, but I think we commission the wrong things. And in the same way that when we measure, you know, I don't care about the revenue. What I do care about is the third renewal because the revenue is taken care of with the third renewal. If they keep spending, then I don't have a revenue problem because the revenue is never the issue. You know, it's the whether or not the solution we are uh, renting to the buyer is fit for purpose in the current context. 
And we've got to spend time in reflection in leadership and management and in sales and in marketing and in product because we don't spend anywhere near enough time thinking as the customer. We don't think as our employee or as our partners. Hallelujah. I couldn't agree more. Can I just draw out one thing you just said, the solution that we are renting to the to the buyer? Because I, I, I think that's a, a Bob Mester thing, isn't it? From the uh, is it, That's the one. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. I love that. And, and yeah, this conceptually, nobody ever buys what you do. They simply rent it until something better comes along. Such a good concept. Keeps you hum- keeps you humble, keeps you curious, keeps you developing what you do. It means that you avoid complacency. I love that. Absolutely and love it. Barnaby Winter had a lovely uh, shift in their perspective as well, which is everyone is a future customer. Whether yeah. they're an existing paying customer, you need to think of them as a future customer in your mm-hmm. interaction and engagement with them so that you keep sharp, that you're constantly thinking, you know, how can I help them see round corners? How can I be the guide to uh, be there when they're going to hit their next struggling moment in the buyer's journey? Because most of what we do misaligns because it's entirely selfish and self-orientated. It's not around the customer and it's not around creating employees or the environment for employees to thrive and want to give discretionary effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this... you know, going back to the to, to the values piece of this, you, you you look at it and you okay. So the good values that we're looking for here for the kinds of transformational, authentic salespeople we're looking for, the kinds of values you're looking for are things like authenticity, vulnerability, benevolence of intent. Um, you know, so genuinely they have the the buyer's best interests at heart, which also speaks to you know the way you lead. This constant curiosity and creativity. We can be better. You know, that's a core value. The value of constructive challenge as opposed to um, coercive challenge, which is what, dare I say, the slightly more bully boy kind of um, tactics are, are for people who have the kinds of values that do not work well for us in this kind of environment and are not sustainable. Because the um, the antithesis of that is probably the more traditional negative view of sales, right? It's, it's the, uh, the, they value Machiavellian control, you know, that they're in charge, that they are the ones controlling the situation in a way that is uh, predicated on selfish self-interest. There's you know, the fact that they believe themselves to be the best, full stop, level of arrogance, right? It's it's implicit. You know, I'm the best and I'm getting one over on you. These are values. I mean, they're horrible values. They're, in neg- yeah. they're, they're negative. They're based on a, on, a, on, a, on a weakness of character, but we see it. We've got to weed it out at, rec- at the recruitment stage. You can't, you know, if you want, unless yeah. you want that in your organization, unless you want that negative culture, you've got to weed it out. Joe Mullins, um, whose recruiters on average build three to 500% more than the industry average. Okay, yes. so it works, but it's a really tough recruitment process. And he recruits for high on trust, average on competence, and experience doesn't care. Beautiful. Trust. Yes. Trust. Absolutely. Trust. But again, let's spend a bit of time defining trust. Yeah, right. Okay. okay. What is trust? How do, how do we define trust and how do we earn it? Because you cannot demand it. Absolutely. Could not agree more. So, I mean, the, the, the prerequisite, uh, again, talking table stakes and tickets to the game, the prerequisite for trust is being trustworthy, right? 
How do you show that you are trustworthy? And, you know, you can look at things like the trust equation, credibility plus reliability plus intimacy um, divided by self-orientation. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good starting point. But let's unpack that a little bit. Credibility and reliability to some extent are intellectual. Credibility is I can do what I say I can do. Reliability is I do it. They're table stakes. since the Exactly. Anyone turning up going for that type of business must be credible and reliable. If they're not, you kick them out. Well, they even do that, right? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Intimacy is the interesting one because that's where you're into vulnerability-based openness. It's that, you know, I'm prepared to really go in there with my soft underbelly exposed, show who I really am, you know, actually forge a genuine human connection, um, recognize that I might get hurt doing this. Um, But that's, you know, I, I can only control me. I can't control you. What I can do is I control how I show up. So I'm going to show up here very genuinely, very authentically, not in a kind of a small a, I'm going to be authentic, genuinely authentic, real, you know. But the minute they get a glimmer of selfish self-interest, that that, that self-orientation, which is about you, not about them, that divides and undermines. It becomes a denominator for all of those other things. Doesn't matter how good you are with your intimacy and everything else. If you look like you're out for you more than them, then they're not going to they're not going to trust you at a level. And so what you're looking for is certainty around the benevolence of intent. That is critical. Certainty around the benevolence of intent. And how do you do that? You establish shared values. If you both care about the same stuff and they understand your moral drivers, well, that will show them what your intent is to some degree. And you have to keep earning it. It's one of those things that you have to keep on showing and keep on evidencing. The minute that your behaviours are incongruent with those values, they will start to question it. You need to give them certainty. And that can only be true if you live your values and you are you walk your talk. And remember, the brain's default setting in response to uncertainty is worst case scenario. So you're just going to switch off the clever bit of their brain where reason and logic occur. When you're putting your salespeople under that kind of pressure, you shut down their ability to use language effectively, to think using reason and logic. And then you put them in front of your customers where you actively encourage them to coercively trigger a response in the buyer, which triggers the insular succumbence, which triggers disgust and contempt. This is the negative unintended consequence of creating coercive pressure with your buyers and creating unpleasant conditions for your employees. There is an argument here for maybe questioning, is there a better way? And I posit there is. 100% 100% agree with you. 100% agree with you. We're talking about the fundamental attribution error here, which is, as I always try to explain it to people when when, I, when when they look at me blankly and say, what the hell is that? I say, well, when you're driving in your car, if you accidentally cut somebody up, it's because of extenuating circumstances. You know, you, you were distracted by the meeting you've got to go to, or maybe you're rushing your dog to uh, to the vets or something like that. It's not because you're uh, an immoral asshole. However, somebody cuts you up in their car, my goodness me, are they an immoral asshole? As you say, the brain will default to a negative interpretation of intent, all things being unequal. So you've got to make things all things equal. And by that, by that, the great leveler is, is those shared values. If you can show evidence of your values, there you go. Well, shared values and shared terminology and identical definition, because ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. 
leads to mismatched expectations, disappointment, and then people do what they think is right based on what they think you've asked them to do, or they do what was done to them. And when they screw it up, you punish them when it was your fault. Yes, absolutely right. Absolutely right. Ugly mirror. The ugly mirror all the time. And yeah, you you you, you sort of keep bringing this ugly mirror up and, and I've probably learned more from the ugly mirror over, over my um, career than I have from any any education, formal education, any courses, let's put it that way. Absolutely. Yeah, university is nothing compared to a good drubbing. <laughs> absolutely. Give, give me scar tissue as an educational tool all day long. Yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the reasons why I've changed my training framework is uh, to ensure that the, uh, the practice labs that we run give immediate contextual feedback. So I bring buyers in. You've got peer review. Um, then you've got neuroscientists and all the um, you know, trust specialists and all these people looking at how you behave in the moment and giving you feedback instantly, because that's how we learn. That's what managers should be doing. The fact that people have to come to me, thank God. But the reality is this is what managers should be doing every day, but they're not able to or they don't know how to because they're so busy on short-term shit. In terms of the, uh, the five or now six Cs, now that we've got common purpose, what do we need to do in order to ensure that there is alignment around the common purpose, because you don't get the community and you don't get all of that ripple effect uh, unless you create that alignment. So what are the conditions that we as leadership need to create? So the kinds of conditions we're talking about is an environment of openness. I mean, we talked about trust before. I mean, without that trust, without, uh, without the trust that you're able to screw up and learn from that screw up. You, you won't have the base conditions to be able to develop the collegiate environment in which people are able to be open and to learn from the mistakes that we're talking about. Because Matthew, Matthew, we're not running a holiday camp. Funnily yeah. enough, we're not. But at the same time, we are running a, an organisation that we would like to be not just successful, but sustainably successful. So, you know, when I'm talking about screw-ups, I'm talking about the kinds of screw-ups that, that come from us actually reaching for something, from trying something new. The, the biggest failure um, in, in terms of a genuine failure is the failure to try new things. Uh, it's the failure to innovate. It's the failure to move away from the safe and the, the uh, it's what Herbert Simon uh, rather clumsily called satisficing. You know, yeah. the very, very rarely do you get the best outcome, the uh, the economically best outcome in all, occasion, in, in all circumstances. What you usually end up with is the one that isn't going to get me fired. People don't put their head above the parapet. And that is a symptom of a culture which is not functioning in the way that we we want it to function based on everything we're talking about here with our five now six c's so in order to create that environment in order to create the uh, the, the base re- uh, level uh, environment for that leaders have to dare i say lead from the front you know the fish rots from the head as the old phrase yeah. goes it, it's uh, not a russian proverb but you know let's say it's just for the sake of it <laughs> anything you don't know where it comes from you call it either it's a quote from churchill or einstein or a russian proverb you know it's one of those another um, one that you forgot confucius Oh yeah, oh, oh yeah, Confucius. He'll do as well. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> basically, you're you're looking at leaderships. Uh, leadership needs to um, walk the talk and actually show evidence of behaviour. So, and the first thing about that is actually admitting your own mistakes, not in a way that undermines your credibility, but in a way that actually is disarmingly honest and builds your credibility. Here's here's the mistakes I've made. Here's what I've learned from them. 
here's the help I need from you guys to stop me making those mistakes again. Here's how I need you to help me because here's my areas of weakness as a leader. Here's my areas of weakness as an operator because we all have them. And the great people really recognize that in order to actually uh, deal with your weaknesses, you recruit to them. You don't try and mitigate them because, well, you mitigate them, but you can't change them. You can't stop them being weaknesses and suddenly turn them into strengths. You spend all your time trying to turn a weakness into a strength and all you're ever going to do is be less weak. You're never going to be really strong in that area. But if you want to turn your strength into a superpower, wow, that's where you can really become bloody good at what you do. So lean into your strengths, make them really, really strong and recruit to your weaknesses. And leaders who can admit that and be open about that, not only empower themselves to get on and do the things that they're really good at, but they empower everybody else around them as well, because they all know the part they have to play in in becoming this great gestalt where the whole is genuinely greater than the sum of its parts. And I know that sounds a bit utopian, but it's it, I see it working. You know, in, it, in it does work, but it's bloody hard and it requires some effort. So yes. three books I would urge leaders to read. Safi Bakal's B, uh, S-A-F-I, B-A-H-C-A-L-L, Loon Shots. He talks about how businesses start out innovating and being creative and encouraging opinions. And then there comes a tipping point where they stop doing that and they start shooting them down. They use some really good evidence in there um, of how you can create a continuing uh, skunkworks kind of environment. The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham is a must read. The book I wish I'd written, if anyone can help me get him onto the podcast, I would give a, a, a finger, um, well, someone else's finger, but he's just it's just brilliant. And Principles by Ray Dalio. And download the PDF from Principles, which is a list, it's a framework, an operating system for how you can create this kind of uh, accountability and openness and frankness. It's not for everyone, and it is exceptionally hard. But the payoff is massive because you eliminate the waste. So CFOs listening, okay, where you see systems that have failure rates north of 80%, and pretty much everything in sales, marketing, and recruitment has failure rates north of 80%, review those systems with the one question, is there a better way? And I guarantee there is. If you start with the end in mind, the job to be done, and you have a customer-centric outcome or perspective. I could not agree more. And, and I will echo your endorsement for those three books. The, the middle one, the Keith Cunningham book, actually, I've got an example where he changed my life uh, for the better with just, just this principle of thinking time, which he has in the book, which is this idea of five minutes, minutes, uninterrupted thinking time where you sit down with the thorniest, knottiest, gnarliest, evilest question that you've got, stick it at the top of a legal pad, and then just start writing. And the first quarter page will probably be nonsense. The next quarter page will be slightly less nonsensical. And then the good stuff will start to come. And on the on the night of uh, whatever it was, the 22nd or 23rd of March, uh, a couple of years ago, when our prime minister stood up on telly and said, we're switching the economy off overnight. I sat down with the legal pad. Well, it was an A4 pad, not, not a legal pad in, uh, over here. I wrote at the, top, at the top of it, why is lockdown the best thing that's ever happened to my business? Mm-hmm. That was the question I asked myself. And I wrote two pages of utter nonsense. But then the third page got good. Right, and and we started to start getting some kind of response, uh, response results out of that. I I was able to build something really good out of that, and the uh, the the, the organisation I was working in at the time, which is the organisation you and I both used to be part of, 
our franchise, we grew 323% that year. Very nice. I thought I thought so. And it was all on the back of that question and everything that then followed from it in terms of the behaviours and actions that, sp- that spun out of that. Read the book, folks. It's a road less stupid. And f- just every chapter has a series of questions at the end that will make you flinch one yeah. after the other. It's beautiful. Um, Solid gold. The other thing that I would strongly advise you to do is take those questions and put them into a framework and have them in chat GPT and have them interrogate you on a regular basis to act as your Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. Um, I think one of the top five lessons I've learned in the last couple of years is go looking for people who disagree with you. Well, now I've got chat GPT to act as my Jiminy Cricket constantly. It's genius. It's, I, I mean, so many of my assumptions have been blown apart. Fantastic. Okay, so let's get back to um, this value stuff. Because um, sure, yeah. how so do we, we build this into recruitment? Yeah, I think I think that's a really, really vital thing. So, so once you actually understand what your values are and you understand the difference between intrinsic values, which are about character and about morals, um, and extrinsic values, which to some extent are top-down things, so they're social mores, they're the sorts of behaviours that one needs to, uh, to to exhibit and and values one needs to at least work to in order to be part of the tribe, as it were. And then you've got the kind of what I call liminal values, which are things which are somewhat extrinsic in terms of like they are things that could be taken away from you, but they speak to intrinsic motivators. So core things like things that speak to your physiological and psychological needs. So whether you want to cleave to Maslow with the typical kind of stuff, or you just look at psychological needs like, you know, status and dignity, um, certainty, as opposed to uncertainty, a level of autonomy and agency, relatedness, uh, fairness, whatever you mean by fairness, whether it's equity, equality, or distribution of wealth on a needs base, um, you know, so the, the sort of three different iterations of fairness, those sorts of things that actually speak to those base motivators but they're extrinsic. So they're things, uh, they're, they're things like, uh, to some extent, family and being included in things, relationships, financial security, so money can come into that. M- money's, money's not a value, but it is valued because of the things that it can give you. And also, notably, those, those, those areas, those liminal areas, they're typically things that can be taken away from you. The more intrinsic va- values are not things that can be taken away from you. You know, nobody can take away your kindness. <laughs> you know, nobody, well, I suppose they could... They could create the circumstances in which you would behave in a way that is not kind. However, there would live a level of uh, cognitive dissonance and a level of regret. I mean, I think Dan, Dan Pink makes that point in his most recent book, doesn't he? About a lot of things we regret are where we are acting in a way that is not congruent with our values. So therefore, those are the things that keep us awake at night. Um, so those, you know, those things can exist. But once you understand that... Once you've got that, then you can actually start building that into your recruitment and making sure that you're hiring for the right sorts of people and hiring for the sorts of motivation that actually matters. And you're motivating people based on the real things that matter, not based on the basic incentives, which are just a a really lazy form of management. You know, treating people as just purely coin operated is a typical thing that happens in sales in particular. But you start to recruit for the, based on the things that matter to them. So, I mean, one of the recruitment questions I typically ask, and I'm giving away the, uh, the, the, the family silver here. So if anybody who's going to be an interview candidate with me, you can now prep your interview based on this question alone, if nothing else, is, OK, think for me of the 
the three people that you admire the most, and I don't care whether they're living or dead, they're known to you, they're unknown to you, they might be, uh, hey, I've even had one person give me a fictional character before now, I don't mind. Just think of the three people you admire the most. Great. Have you got them? Wonderful. Now tell me what sorts of traits, the top one, two, three, four, five traits that you admire in each one of those people. Great. And you get them to tell you what those traits are. Now, to some extent, what I'm doing here is I'm getting them to hold a mirror up because it's much easier to kind of talk about the things we value in other people and the behaviours and the traits that we value in other people than to talk about our own values. In an interview scenario, if you say, what are your values? They're likely to say, well, I've got great integrity. I've got great hard work, a lovely work ethic. I really am a team player. Yeah, great. Wonderful. Can you can you read the jargon out a little bit more? If you ask them what they admire in other people, you like to get the truth. Yeah. And the truth is what they value in other people is likely to be the things they value in themselves as well, because values are values. Right. Yeah. And then you go into another question around. OK, so to if if you overheard other somebody else talking about you and saying that you are insert the values they've just listed here and describing you in those terms, how would you feel about it? And they usually say, oh, I feel pretty good about it. Great. OK. Can you give me some examples of the sorts of behaviours that you typically uh, do day to day, week to week, that leads you to act in those ways? And that then t- tells you, and, and if they're stumped and they can't come up with examples, well, you know, you, you pretty much know that they actually don't do those things. Because it's Very really nice. Language, you know, Very so that, that's, that's part of my own interview uh, technique on this. Now, there's a bunch of other things as well, but that's the kind of thing you want to put into your interview. It's not, off, it's not interviewing for soft and fluffy stuff. Actually, this is the hard stuff. Yeah. This is the stuff that matters. I think for sales, we've got to rethink what great looks like. Sure. Great salespeople are great listeners. They are really good at reading the room. So they're high on EQ. They give really clear responses. So they need to have answer intelligence as well. And they need to have business acumen. They also need to be massively tolerant of boredom because a lot of what we do is grunt work and it's repetitive and we have to stay excited doing it. We have to be massively organized. And the more we get into high ticket or tech or anything like that, there are many, many moving parts and there are many vendors. So we're just one moving part in the machine. So we have to learn how to play nicely with others. So learning good partnering skills and being able to sell cooperatively, even with our competition, with the customer and their problem at the heart of what we do. These are qualities I think we need to look for and recruit for and develop, but they're not the qualities of short-term thinkers. So is it even possible in an environment where the agenda of the money is different to the interests of the customer? And I think that's absolutely right. You know, fundamentally, you have to have that alignment. Your organization exists or started for, for one reason and one reason only, which is actually because there was a need for it. I mean, typically that need needs to, needs to translate into some kind of client requirement, right? The best interests of the clients, therefore, must always be the best interests of your organization. They must be. So, as always, the answer is a question. <laughs> and ideally, if you want better answers, ask better questions. Cliche, cliche, but it's true, as all cliches tend to be. The question that one should be asking is about everything that you do in an organization is, is this in the best interests of 
Is this in the best interest of our client? Is this in the best interest of our, of our employees? If the answer is both of those things are yes, well, then it's a definite go ahead and do it. If the answer is, I don't know, well, go and find out. And if the answer is no, well, don't freaking do it. You know, at a basic level, it's as simple as that. Um, that, that's, that should be your basic investment criteria for anything that you do. Yeah. And the other question I would say is, um, does it move us towards the job to be done? Yes. If it doesn't move you towards the job to be done, why the hell are we doing it? Because then we're working at odds with the job and yes. everyone is working towards the job to be done. And if that is not clear, everything stems from that. That's why the clarity, I think, is so important. The common purpose, the clarity of that. And you feed all the way through and you've then got the why of the community. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and, and speaking very you know, self-indulgently for a moment, I mean, one of the reasons why I've moved into the organization that I've moved into is having spent such a long time working with them externally as a, as a, as a, as a coach and as a, as a consultant, I've kind of seen the way that they genuinely behave and that it is genuinely led by purpose. And that's so rare. You know, that actually want, I haven't really come across another organization that I wanted to work for, if you see what I mean. And that, that's, that, that's real rarity value. Okay, it, so it, let me ask you this. I would say, from a practical standpoint, how has that changed um, your perspective um, as a hirer of people compared with other organizations? The, the honest answer is um, it hasn't changed it more so much as reinforced it. It's reinforced the, the views that I'd come to over several decades of, of screwing up in, in the area of recruitment. If I, if I can sort of tell a sort of side, sidebar story here for the first time I really, really screwed up a, a, a recruit, I got this guy in as a, and he was going to be our digital marketing manager back when digital marketing managers were a brand new thing because digital was a brand new thing at that point. My goodness me, he was the best interview candidate I'd ever seen. He was absolutely fantastic. I thought, this guy's succession management for me. He's going to take my job at some stage. He's absolutely brilliant. The most articulate, intelligent, well-read, sign of a good education, left, right, and center. The, the, the answers he gave were impeccable, which I subsequently realized about nine months later when I finally admitted to myself that he was about hire, which is nine months later than it should have been, because uh, he cost me a bloody fortune during the course of the time that he was on my payroll. I realized that the reason he was such a good interview candidate is because he'd had a lot of practice at interview, which because <laughs> <laughs> he'd had a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a clue here. When the guy's CV looks like the yellow pages, you know you've got a problem, right? He's got more jobs than uh, than than uh, than than basically the local recruitment agency. So uh, so yeah, no, it, it was there were some clues there. And again, there's nobody at fault here but me. But had I asked him the kinds of questions that I now ask, especially the values questions, he would never have made it onto the payroll. He would never have got onto the payroll because he'd have been found out at interview. And this is, this is the job, is to be able to kind of weed out those false positives. The false positives are the most pernicious uh, the area of, of costs for your business. And not just cost in terms of the, their, their salary, but uh, the opportunity cost, which is obvious, but your time and the cultural erosion. We talk about this fast track to cultural cancer. If you allow bad hires to prosper within your organization or even just survive within your organization then it's sending a message to everybody else this is how we behave around here that's dangerous that's so dangerous 
in this organization, the one I'm working for now, that doesn't happen. You have good people being hired because actually we all, all the leadership team, and, and this stems from the founders of the, the business, Daryl and Sarah, they all live those values. They all actually walk the talk. And it's very, very, very clearly mapped out, not just in a kind of, you know, I've got a lovely frame on the wall that has these things, you know, that, that some consultant helped us to draft, but actually there's a proper cultural charter that we all sign up to, that we all understand, that we all live. It's, you have to physically sign it. Brilliant. You have to physically sign it as well. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's right. absolutely you, fantastic. You cannot deny you signed it. Absolutely. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Oh, this has been so much fun, Matthew. We're coming to time, sadly. Is there anything we haven't touched on? All oh, right. Okay. Um, non-financial incentives. Um, one of the things that really flabbergasts me is this overemphasis of the financial. And I understand why people do it, because it's familiar, it's what they've always done, yada, yada, yada. But it's time we've re- reviewed this. We, we need to look at uh, compensation and non-financial incentives. Um, because uh, I, I was a headhunter for 10 years, and what I found was f- money came fifth or sixth on most salespeople's uh, list of hierarchies. The number one thing was, does my boss give a damn? location and the commute was more important than money. The environment that they were in and the people that they worked with was more important than money. Um, And we've got to stop trying to incentivize human beings on the basis that they're a machine based on 19th and 20th century management and educational theory. You know, Skinner and Taylor have a hell of a lot to answer for. And none of uh, most... The way managers work today and the way most salespeople sell today is based on anything based in the 21st century since the arrival of neuroscience, fMRI scans, behavioral psychology and understanding of heuristics and so on. These are things that we have not really implemented. So let's talk about the non-financial side. Absolutely. And, and, you know, to to the point you're making here, money is only ever a means to an end anyway. You know, it, it goes back to the point I was talking about, about the kind of those liminal uh, values, the, the things that are valued but can be taken away from you. They, it has to be something that facilitates something deeper as an actual motivator. You know, the difference between an incentive and a motivator. Motivations are things like, as you say, things that actually matter because it's, it's not necessarily just the commute or the um, or, or, or anything else like that that really matters. It's what does that commute give you? Well, probably it gives you more time at home. Why do you want to be at home? Well, you want to be at home because you're with the people who you love. You want to spend more time with those people because notionally you're actually doing the work thing to some degree in order to be able to facilitate a rich, meaningful life. And, and some of that rich, meaningful life is, is spending time with the people that you L-O-V-E love. You know, <laughs> That's, So these are the things that actually matter to people. So understanding that and being able to tease that out and talk to people about what really motivates them, the things that actually matter to them. Well, in order to have that conversation in the first place, again, you have to have this meaningful atmosphere of trust. You have to have the ability to kind of have deep conversations with your direct reports and understand what matters to them. And then tailor not just their compensation package, but also their working um, environment to them. And we talk about flexible working environments. There's an awful lot of talk about working from home and there are good things about it and there are things that don't work so well about it. But that flexibility, if it is done with intent and in a way that actually speaks to people's real deep-seated needs and motivations, it is freaking powerful. 
It's beautiful. And it means that you're a great place to work. Nobody's ever going to be leaving your organization just because they get offered another couple of grand in their salary package because of everything else. And also because they feel like they're cared about. Because people, they actually feel like, to your point, the boss gives a shit. Yeah. Two, two things that every aspiring or aspirational manager wants to improve should look at is Project Oxygen from Google and the Gallup 12 questions. The Gallup 12 questions ask a really important question, which is, does the person, the, your manager, care about you? And the indicator of that is, do the people in your team recommend people they care about to join the team? It's a fantastic leading indicator. And it's one that I don't think I've ever seen anyone measure. Now, if we start looking at these smarter leading indicators, how do we create lifetime value for customers? How do we create the conditions where customers want to stay with us for life and expand? And we and they grow together in alignment and to our mutual benefit. And these are interesting questions, not how do we make the short-term target? And I think we've got to get a lot smarter. And I think Matthew's five C's Six C's now. The khaki dash for Hughes model. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's yeah, alphabetical. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I think you've got to really look in the mirror and take some time. Use the Keith Cunningham exercise. Do exactly as Matthew uh, suggested. 45 minutes of you and no interruptions and the shittiest, gnarliest, most difficult, bile-inducing, ulcer-forming question you can think of. And then answer that question. Make it difficult and ask difficult questions because you're going to get really interesting answers. And then cheat. After you've done the manual work, put your input into ChatGPT and let it do some work. You'd be amazed at the type of responses you're going to get back. Matthew, thank, first of all, thank you. This has been incredibly insightful. So we need to book the next one. Best lesson, as you go back um, to your 23-year-old self and you started on your corporate career, what one choice bit of advice would you whisper in the idiot's ear uh, age oh, 23? So so many things. And oh my goodness me, if I had a time machine, everything would be so different, wouldn't it? I mean, it's got to be asked better questions. It's always got to be asked questions. And, and let's build on it and build on what we've talked about today. Find out what they care about and then verify. That would be the one piece of advice I'd give them. That 23-year-old me who probably wouldn't have listened. But yeah, find out, find out what they care about and then verify that you've understood it properly. That's really good advice. What, what would you recommend people read, watch or listen to at the moment that will help them in creating this kind of environment? Oh, wow. So there's some great stuff out there um, at the moment. You recommended three amazing books earlier on. Um, we also mentioned Demand Side Sales by Bob Mester, which is an absolute must read as well. Um, Trust-based selling, Charles H. Yeah. Green, must read. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, another another good one. Um, you, you probably want to read The Trusted Advisor by David H. Meister. It's, it's, a, it's a classic, and it actually talks about the trust equation that we mentioned earlier on. So if that tickled your fancy and made, it made you interested as a listener, then that's where that comes from. Um, you had a guy on um, a couple of months ago called Daryl Stickle. And if you haven't listened to that podcast about trust, I strongly recommend that you do go back into the uh, Welcome to the Inquisitor archives and find that because that is 
that's a belter of an, uh, of an interview. It really is. He, he talked uh, very eloquently about the need for certainty in basic uh, in trust and some of the points that I made about uh, certainty about benevolence of intent earlier on, very much based on the things that he was saying. So, you know, credit where it's due. There's also a book called Selling Transformed by a guy called Philip Squire. That's worth a read as well. Philip is, uh, has worked with, I want to say it's the University of East Anglia, but I might be getting that wrong, uh, to create the first ever accredited master's degree in selling. And it's very much values-based selling. It's a really interesting book. And he's an interesting guy, actually. Um, you, should, you should probably have it on the podcast if you can. I, I was wondering, can you make an introduction, please? Yes, I can. <laughs> Lovely. Excellent. Matthew, how can people get hold of you? You can get me on LinkedIn. That's always the easiest way. There's not too many Dashboard users in the world. In fact, there's only two of them. The other one's my wife. So you'll be able to find it, find me pretty easily. Yeah. Otherwise, given that my name is so very long to spell, you can get me at my email address, which is very simply MDH. That's just my initials, MDH at gunnercook.com. Gunnercook is G-U-N-N-E-R-C-O-O-K-E. And are you hiring at the moment? We are always interested in talking to people. Um, so even when I don't have a vacancy, I'm always in hiring mode. Okay. And what in particular are you looking for? What, what um, human-shaped holes are you looking to fill to fix problems? At the moment, I am looking for, uh, specifically, I'm looking for people in, um, in the US and in Germany, because with my international brief, yeah. I'm not necessarily UK-based. And I'm looking for people who are... In the legal profession, they are legal specialists. They're probably um, lawyers with a degree of mastery of what they do. They've probably been doing what they do for 10 years plus, but they're getting frustrated by big law. They're getting frustrated by the fact that they can't serve clients as well as they would like to because of the pressures of doing everything um, to maximize time and maximize value per hour or the amount of billable hours or whatever. And they're getting sick and tired of the behaviours that drives and the fact that actually clients suffer and also their own work-life balance suffers as well. I'd love to talk to anybody like that because um, we may well have a very nice home for them. Wonderful. Okay, so get your CVs ready and also cold call him. Give him a ring and um, you know investigate why he needs people like that because I think that will be a very interesting conversation. He's given you the first uh, clues with his interview process as well. So listen back. Um, <laughs> Good uh, point. In, in the meantime first of all thank you matthew pleasure absolute pleasure thanks thank you all for listening if you found this useful and insightful then please like comment and share and please start giving me some four-star reviews i need to bring my rating down to about 4.2 to 4.5 and at the moment it's stuck at five and no one's listening to the podcast so um, i need your help i'm looking for some really interesting and challenging guests as well So, you know, we're going to be picking on some very difficult topics in the next couple of um, months. And I want people who can be really insightful and offer a different opinion. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs.com and stay safe. Happy selling. Bye bye.